Police enter the home of John Price around nine in the morning. The room is dark, curtains drawn. It takes a moment for the officer's eyes to adjust after coming in out of the bright sunlight. The display crafted by Catherine Knight that slowly comes into focus is more gruesome than the officer's worst nightmares. It looks like there's a curtain or blanket hanging in the doorway. An officer moves it aside with his forearm, and he feels cold wetness. He looks down, and his arm is completely covered in blood. I'm Marina. With me, I have my two best friends, Colby and Laura, and this is Grim. way to set the scene this is a good one guys there's a lot of information i have a couple pages of notes um and i just wanted to say i guess i have a thing for geographical areas because i was really stuck on connecticut and this is my back-to-back australia case so uh we're going we're going down under again awesome that was the best australian accent you've done all evening don't worry i'm gonna ruin it later i know it's gonna no um i'll I'll do it poorly we mean it with love (laughs) yeah i know i know i'm terrible at it i know uh, so I also said I wasn't going to read a book for my next case. <laughs> How'd um, that go? Instead, I read two. <laughs> so like, I, I actually meant I wasn't going to read one at all, but I right. guess I just took it in the other direction. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, so I read the book Bloodstain by Peter Laylor and Maneater by Ryan Green. And I also watched... Uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> I don't know anything about this case. And, oh. and I'm so excited that oh, you don't boy. know anything about it because it's just, it's wild. It's a very wild case. Oh, um and there's also some crime scene video, like pieces of it, uh, that's included in an episode of Crimes That Shook Australia. Ooh. So I watched that. Did you pick up your next case from there, too? Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. I will research Australian cases, though. Maybe <laughs> Ivan Milat. He was a... I haven't heard of that I don't one know either. that one either. Yeah. Okay. Guys, I'm so excited. All right. Australian <laughs> cases for life. All right. All right. Buckle up, buttercup. Shit's about to get real. Okay. So we are talking about Catherine Mary Knight, who was born on October 24th, 1955, to Barbara and Kenneth Knight. And the family was dysfunctional, to say the least. So Kathy's mother, Barbara, had previously been married to a man named Jack Rugen. Barbara and Jack got married when she was a teenager, and the two had four boys in their first 10 years of marriage. They lived in the small town of Aberdeen, New South Wales, Australia. Aberdeen was a small town with less than 2,000 citizens, and at its height, the local abattoir, or slaughterhouse, employed about 600 people. So it was really a working town. There was local mines and Mm -hmm. this slaughterhouse. Jack worked at the slaughterhouse with Kathy's father, Ken Knight, who is Mr. Steal Your Girl in this story. Oh. The Knight family was well known in the town of Aberdeen, and Ken was known for being a hard worker with excellent knife skills. Jack and Ken would go drinking with other co-workers at the local pub, and on one occasion, the men brought their wives, which is how Barbara met Ken. The two had a connection, and Barb and Ken started having an affair, which was a juicy scandal in this small little town. Barb and Ken. Barbie and Ken. Yes, I realized after I said Barb and Ken instead of Barbara and Ken that it's like Barbie and Ken. Nice. Mm -hmm. Some say that Barbara was driven into Ken's arms by Jack's drunken, neglectful ways, and others say they simply fell in love. 
Either way, the affair tore up the Rugen family. Barbara's two youngest sons were shipped off to live with Jack's aunt in Sydney, Australia, which was 200 miles away, while her two older sons stayed with their dad. Her youngest son was only a few months old at the time. In 1949, with nothing holding them back or tying them down, Ken and Barbara moved to Marie to get away from the scandal and shame. Ken got a job at the local slaughterhouse. Barbara got divorced from Jack, and her and Ken were married a week later. Barbara was pregnant at the time. The couple had two sons in the years that followed, and Barbara's first son with Ken, whose name was Kenneth Charles Knight, was born less than a year after her last son that she had had with Jack Rugen. God bless. Mm-hmm. On October 24th, 1955, is when Barbara gave birth to non-identical twin girls with red curly hair, Joy, who was older, and Catherine. After the twins, Barbara had one more boy for eight kids total, and Catherine and Joy were the only two girls in the bunch. When Catherine was only four years old, Jack Rugen died, and the two older boys passed into Barbara's care. So the house was full. I'll say. Wow. And they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Always. If you're enjoying Grim. I mean, we make that joke every single. We do. Every single. Thing. I think I actually wrote it into my notes did later you? on in the episode, too. <laughs> so, Not quite on the happily ever after. Uh, it became clear that Ken had a crippling addiction to alcohol. Ken also had an insatiable sexual appetite. He demanded sex constantly, sometimes up to 10 times a day. And trigger warning, when Barbara turned him down, he beat her until she gave in. And when the beatings were no longer effective, he just started raping her, sometimes in front of their children. And the children remember Ken chasing Barbara around the house for sex. Oh, how terrible. And Ken demanded compliance not only from Barbara, but also from the children. When they were disobedient, he would hit the kids with a dog leash. And Barbara was softer, but she was still strict with a bad temper, and she, too, was known to hit the kids. She ran a tight ship and liked a neat house. If she couldn't bounce a coin off the bed sheet, she would make the kids remake them. And Barbara was not an affectionate mother. One of her sons actually remembers her cringing away from him when he tried to hug her. What an awful environment. Terrible. Terrible. But Catherine did learn important life skills from her mother. She learned how to cook, clean, and sew. Uh, But in spending time together, Barbara would talk to Kathy and complain about her life circumstances. She would tell her about explicit sexual encounters with Ken, um, which is actually a pretty quick and simple way to fuck up your kid. Um, Uh, Yeah. 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 One day when Barbara was talking about sexual exploits, Catherine had the courage to ask her, what do you say if you don't want to do those things? Her mother said, just let them do what they want with you. It's easier that way. Oh, how heartbreaking took the words out of my mouth yep so overall Catherine used two words to describe her childhood bad and sad Hmm. children who went to school with joy and Catherine said that you could slice the air in the night home with a knife and that you could smell the violence in the air they said it seemed like there was no love in the house and on top of that another trigger warning Catherine said that two of her brothers sexually molested her from the ages of six to eleven which is actually when she finally stopped wetting the bed There's room for doubt concerning her accusations. One psychiatrist who examined her later in life questioned the events because she couldn't remember specific details. And he said that victims of sexual assault rarely suffer repressed memories like she was saying. But there was enough evidence between the whisperings of the family and some of her behaviors to lend credibility to her claims. And she also had a complete fear and paranoia of sexual assault that likely evolved from these early traumas. So overall, they credit some of it, but there is a doubt as to the extent or 
um, exactly what she says. And I can imagine things were probably just very confusing in that household. There's just things you don't ever want to think about your parents doing, and then it's just combined with violence. So in a mixed family. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. Catherine looked for an escape from her home life and found a friend in her uncle, Oscar Knight, which was Ken's brother. Oscar was a former rodeo rider and Catherine worked with Oscar on a farm and helped him tend to horses and other animals. She began rescuing injured animals and she'd nurse them back to health. But unfortunately, Oscar had his own struggles. And in 1969, he committed suicide. Jeez. Catherine was devastated and said she wished it had been her father that died because she loved her uncle Oscar more. Around the same time, the Knight family made the move back to Aberdeen and Catherine went to high school at Muswellbrook High School, which was a town over. Kids quickly learned not to bully her. When something riled her up, she would defend herself with her fists, boots, and vindictive behavior. She assaulted one kid with a bamboo pole, and she also assaulted a teacher who punched Catherine back in self-defense. Oh, shit. (laughs) Damn. So you know that's serious. Yeah. A little tidbit about Catherine is that later on in life, she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. Um, So I'm just going to give you a little bit of background about this. There are also psychiatrists who said that she did not suffer from it and that this was just an aspect of her personality. Um, But it is discussed in the books and it is known about her. So I think it's important that we have sort of a background before I explain more of her behavior over her lifetime to you. So there are nine symptoms of borderline personality disorder, and if you have five of them, you're deemed to have the disorder. The symptoms of borderline personality disorder include, one, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, two, a pattern of unstable and intense relationships, three, unstable self-image or sense of self, four, impulsive in harmful ways, five, recurrent suicidal behavior or threats, Six, overreactive. Seven, chronic feelings of emptiness. Eight, inappropriate intense anger. And nine, severe dissociative symptoms. Um, So that's just a smattering. You guys may start to see some of these symptoms um, come up in her behavior. But just I wanted you to have this piece of information and and take it for what it's worth. Because like I said, psychiatrists disagree as to whether or not she had borderline personality disorder. Okay. Catherine left high school at age 15 and could neither read nor write, which actually wasn't that uncommon. Many kids would stay in school until they were old enough to work at the abattoir and you didn't need to know how to read or write to use a knife. After she left school, Catherine wanted to follow in her father's footsteps and work at the slaughterhouse. Her initial application was rejected, so she went to work at a clothing factory for a year where she established herself as a hardworking, foul-mouthed fighter. (laughs) In 1971, Catherine landed her dream job, as she called it, working in the Aberdeen Slaughterhouse. She started out working in the Awful Room, which seems like an appropriate name, but it's O-F-F-A-L, not A-W-F-U-L, which is the internal organs of the animals. And her job involved cleaning congealed marrow and blood out of the carcasses of the animals and then cutting them into smaller pieces. I'm sorry, this was her dream job? Her dream job, yes. Mm-hmm. We have different definitions of the word dream. You I'm know, pretty sure. there's something for everybody. Yep. You're right. I shouldn't hate. Don't yeah. knock it till I try it. Her favorite part was that she got her own set of knives that she kept in pristine condition. Hmm. 
Catherine had a meteoric rise in the slaughterhouse and was soon promoted to the most difficult job of deboning, which required serious knife skills. And that's the skill that made her father's name, and she actually worked alongside him when their shifts aligned. Catherine loved her job and would go to the slaughterhouse on her days off and just walk around, observe, and talk to the men. Catherine could hang out like one of the guys, and she loved to hunt and skin animals. And her favorite place to hang out in the slaughterhouse was at the front of the processing line where the pigs were slaughtered. Oh. She lingered there every lunch hour and actually became friends with the lonely old man responsible for killing the pigs. I feel like we haven't even gotten to really the crux of anything, and I'm already, with every new sentence you have, it's a detail I didn't expect. Yeah, I told you, this case is wild. Like, even the small stuff is is a little bit wild. I'm forming an opinion of Catherine. Okay. All right. I forgot <laughs> about your intro when you were telling us about her childhood. I was like, this poor woman. I mean, I still don't know what happened, so I, I'm not sure I which I don't think way. you're going to have much sympathy for Catherine mm-hmm. when we're done with I this. I suspected okay. that. I thought that when I was feeling very sympathetic for her with her childhood. I just, Yeah, you, you need her background. I mean, uh-huh. it really did shape who she was as a person, but... Um, she does some things that are frowned upon in, in civilized society. We'll say that. So at first people thought Catherine was just there to learn, you know, she just wanted to learn all the processes within the the slaughterhouse, but it became clear that there was more to it than that. Mm. Normally the pig's throats are cut so that they bleed out quickly. Um, but when Catherine would join in, she would just nick the arteries with her blade and watch the pig squeal and bleed out. Oh, Catherine, no, 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 no. Yeah, Laura is just like <laughs> slack jawed over here staring at me. So she, like, concerning. That's like a little, a little bit concerning. Uh-huh. In 1972, when Catherine was 17, she was fixated on a man named David Kellett, who also worked at the slaughterhouse. Kellett was friends with one of the night boys and would hang out with Joy and Catherine. The feeling between David and Catherine was mutual, and they started dating. Catherine was a devoted partner who took care of David. She cooked him meals, mended his clothes, and satisfied him with her own insatiable sexual appetite that he certainly wasn't complaining about. Before long, they moved in together, and Catherine was the perfect girlfriend still. She liked to hunt and fish with him. She didn't get on him about his drinking, which he liked to drink like a fish, and she'd defend him in the pub if someone was bothering him, ready to throw fists if necessary. I don't think I mentioned Catherine, I believe, was about six feet. Um, And I think David was like a normal size, uh, uh, average size male. So like maybe like five, eight, five, nine. So like she was taller than him. Catherine wanted to marry David. And one day she asked him during their lunch break at the slaughterhouse. Romantic. romantic. He agreed. And Catherine took him to meet her parents at dinner. Her mom, Barbara, cornered David in the kitchen and said, you want to marry her, do you? You sure about that? You know she's got a screw loose. (laughs) Jeez. She said, mom, you'd better watch that one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. Oh, damn. All right. Beautiful wedding wishes from Mama Barb. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. And he's thinking, this is the woman for me still. (laughs) He's like, love her. I'm doing it. So Catherine and David got married a few days after she turned 18. David spent the day drinking and was drunk as a skunk. And they arrived to Muswell Brook Courthouse on Catherine's dirt bike and celebrated afterwards with friends in the pub across the street. 
Catherine and David went back to his apartment to consummate the marriage. They had sex three times in quick succession, and then David fell asleep. He was exhausted after a full day of drinking, and I mean, three times is pretty impressive. But Catherine wasn't done, so she got pissed. Catherine's mom and dad had done it five times on their wedding night, which Catherine's mom casually told her one of right. their during one of their girl talks. Uh-huh. So Catherine was pissed and disappointed that they had only done it three times. So she wrapped her hands around David's throat and started strangling him. She was shaking the shit out of him and screaming that her parents did it five times. And when David came to, he was more confused than mad. That should have been the start and yeah. end of that uh-huh. marriage. Right. By the way, I think most of this episode is just going to be Colby and Laura <laughs> staring at me with their mouth open. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's no video, but that's what they're doing, guys. Mm-hmm. So after that night, it was smooth sailing for long enough that David just let it go. Catherine resumed her role as the perfect wife and caretaker, but it wasn't long before David started having problems with Kathy's psychotic ways again. She'd be sweet as pie, the smallest thing would set her off, then she'd flip the switch again. She would apologize by getting down on her knees, both literally and figuratively. That is how she kept him around. In August 1975, Catherine found out she was pregnant. And her obsession with losing David escalated with the thought of him running around while she was knocked up. She felt better knowing that he couldn't stray far from her because his truck was broken. (laughs) She didn't actually know that he was cheating on her with another woman from Queensland that he'd also knocked up. Oh, dear. Oh, damn. Catherine gave birth to her first daughter, Melissa Ann Kellett, on May 11th, 1976, and nothing fixes a relationship like a newborn baby. I hear that, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Newborn babies really bring people together. They it's a do. very restful, yeah. calming yep. time it in helps. one's life. It helps yeah. a lot. I always say it is actually the equivalent of throwing a grenade into your marriage, <laughs> so you better hope you guys are on good terms. Those early weeks were hard for Catherine, as they would be for any new mother, and she was extra paranoid about David's behavior. When Melissa was about seven weeks old, the two got into an extremely heated argument, and Catherine tried to stab him with a broken beer bottle. It was then that David knew that he had to get away. I it mean, was be- then. It was then <laughs> that he knew. It was only then. <laughs> the strangle on the wedding night, like, that didn't do it for him. No. It, was, it, it, took, it okay. took that long, yes. That's good. He gave his notice at the slaughterhouse and told his boss to keep it hush-hush. He got his truck fixed by the local one-legged mechanic, Ken Hoppy Sullivan. Oh, (laughs) I love it. I love it. And he ghosted Catherine, leaving town with his pregnant girlfriend because he knew that she'd kill him if she knew he was leaving. Honestly, probably for the best for him to do that. That was self-preservation skills at their finest. Mm -hmm. And of course... Catherine lost her damn mind. Barbara and Ken tried to help her, but she proved to be even too much for them. She was talking nonsense and said she hated baby Melissa. She blamed Melissa for David leaving and wanted to kill her. And she tried. (gasps) Catherine was admitted to St. Elmo Psychiatric Hospital in Tamworth. There were rumors that she had swung Melissa by the ankles and she also threatened to kill herself. She's deemed a danger to herself and others, but was released after only two weeks. Not long after her release, Catherine was seen walking with Melissa in a carriage, and she was screaming at the baby, and she was pushing the carriage over potholes and bumps and flinging the carriage from side to side. She then went and put Melissa on the train tracks and (gasps) casually walked into town. 
What? Catherine grabbed an axe from a wood pile and started swinging it in a figure eight. People were literally running and screaming and hiding from her in the town while she was just running around like an axe-wielding wild woman. The cops were able to talk Catherine down, and thankfully, baby Melissa was saved by a man they called Old Ted. Old Ted had been foraging near the train tracks when he heard the baby, and he got her off the tracks minutes before a train came. Oh, good on you, Old Ted. Is it like old Greg? I was going to say, I'm old Greg. I'm a scaly man fish. <laughs> uh, so the police subdued Catherine. They returned her to St. Elmo's Hospital, where she signed herself out the same night and was discharged into her parents' care. No, I reject that. Yeah, Why? You should. My notes say, God. <laughs> <laughs> and she was prepared to go berserk again. Her family knew she was dangerous, and her father went to her house and took away a gun that she kept on her front porch. The very next morning, she left the house on a mission with a check, a piggy bank, bandages, scissors, and knives. <laughs> the essentials that I never leave home without. Definitely. <laughs> One of the cops actually saw Kath walking up the street, and he said, Crikey, there she goes now. <laughs> <laughs> You, uh, you sound like a little British boy. Or like an Australian Moira Rose. Earlier you sounded a bit more like Moira yeah. Rose than you Crikey. did right there. There you go. There she is. Crikey. There she goes now. No. 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 I'm sorry, Australia. Can I apologize to you as a country? A collective country. I'm apologizing to Australia. <laughs> as you should. <laughs> Catherine headed to see the Macbeths, who were her neighbors. And Catherine also worked with Margaret Macbeth and her mother at the slaughterhouse. She knocked on their door and told them that baby Melissa was sick and she needed a ride to the doctor. Margaret agreed to help and Catherine went back home to get the baby ready. So she, she said. She still had the baby in her care during oh. this? That's what she went back to? She got the baby back, yes. Mm-hmm. Baby back, baby back. <laughs> okay. She should not have the baby back. <laughs> she, she should not. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. They should have taken that baby away. Yeah. So Margaret, her siblings, and mother... Um, got into the car and went to Catherine's house. When they got there, Catherine was acting strangely. And when she saw everyone in the car, she said, there's too fucking many of you. I have to get rid of some of you. <laughs> Which, if that was me hearing that comment, I'd be like, nope, I'm good. Thank you. No good deeds today. She asked Margaret to come into her house to help her with the bassinet. When Margaret went inside, Catherine was seemingly tucking blankets into the bassinet when she then pulled out a huge curved knife from next to the sleeping baby. Margaret turned and ran outside. She fell on the lawn and Catherine jumped on top of her and cut Margaret's cheek. Margaret was able to get away again uh, and it was chaos. Catherine had her box of bandages, knives, and scissors and she told the family she was going to cut them up and then put them back together. That's not how that works, Catherine. No. <laughs> Margaret's mother was able to calm Catherine down over the course of an hour, but Catherine just kept going to the porch looking for something that she couldn't find. Oh, her gun, uh -huh. maybe, that her dad took? Yes, no. exactly. So the family found that out later, and uh. it could have been much worse than it was, not that it was very good. Catherine's brother showed up at some point and told her to let the people go, calling her a fucking mad bitch. She told him to fuck off, and he left. Catherine did let the Macbeth son go home because the mom said he was having asthma issues, and that son went 
to the neighbor's house and called the police. Good. So Catherine's plan was to go find David Kellett's mother and force her to tell her where David was living. So she wanted to force the Macbeth family to drive her there. They got in the car, Catherine with her big knife, and she said she'd kill them if they tried anything. The Macbeth said they needed gas if they were going to make the long trip to Queensland, and Kath was fine with the pit stop because she needed to cash the check that she had anyways. And I like to run errands during hostage situations mm-hmm. as well because, I mean, like, who has the time these days? Well, you're you out know? anyway. It's just convenient. You know? What, are you going to go out twice? You're saving on gas, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's just very convenient. expensive. Right. Yeah. Gas is very expensive. Mm-hmm. So when they got to the service station, the Macbeths made a break for it and ran into the building, locking themselves in the office. And Catherine was pissed. She started trying to break into the office and was pounding on the door with her fists. She knew she wasn't going to get in that way. So she went and ripped the blade off of a giant lawnmower with her bare hands. What? And was swinging it around and trying to hack the door open. (laughs) Then she saw the mechanic at the shop, good old Hoppy Sullivan. She was mad at him because he had been the one that fixed David's truck that allowed him to leave town. So she stole poor Hoppy's crutch and started to smash things with it. Oh, no. Hoppy. Hoppy. Still trying to break into the office where the Macbeth family was sheltered in place. At some point, Catherine got a hold of one of the Macbeth children and had him in one hand, knife in the other. The cops finally arrived and convinced Catherine to let the boy go. And they then pushed in towards her using brooms to try to disarm her as she swung her knife. I just picture the scene from Practical Magic where they're all standing in the circle with broomsticks trying to save Jillian from Jimmy, Jimmy's ghost. No, I don't think I've seen Practical Magic. I've <laughs> never scared. even heard well, of it. Well, that's for the gremlins that have seen Practical Magic. And you really should watch that movie because it's a great movie with Nicole Kidman and Sandra oh. Bullock. Oh, okay. great movie. Okay. Once disarmed, the police tackled Catherine to the ground and handcuffed her. Melissa had slept through the whole affair. One of the officers suffered a nick to the arm, but he said that she never tried to attack him. I think it was just in the kerfuffle. This should be the end of the story. Catherine was committed, got the help she needed, and everyone lived happily ever after. Mm -hmm. But this is grim. (laughs) Boo-doo. (laughs) Doo-doo-doo-doo. So Catherine was sent to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital since her experience at the prior institution didn't seem to end very well. And she remained there for almost a month this time. Mm. While in the hospital, she told staff that she had wanted to go to Queensland because she was planning to torture David's mother until she gave up his new address. And she wanted to kill David, his new girlfriend, and anyone who helped David get away. So she should be let back out into the public. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I assume she told them this at the very beginning of her stay and that... She grew as a person towards the end. (laughs) Coincidentally, around the same time, things weren't working out with David and his new girlfriend. Oh, son of a bitch. He's going to go back to her. God damn it. When David called the night home to tell Catherine he wanted to give it another go, he found out that Catherine was in an institution and he felt terrible. And he left his pregnant girlfriend and moved back to Aberdeen with his mother. David got his old job back, then moved to have Catherine transferred into his and his mother's care, who just happened to be the people that she was headed to kill on the day that she was apprehended. Also, Catherine's family couldn't have mentioned that she wanted to kill him, too. Like, yeah, she's in the hospital because she was plotting murder. I think he knew. And he still... He just felt terrible that she was in that mental state because he left. Good on him. 
He just felt a sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. In August 1976, Catherine was released into David's care with the promise she would stay on her antipsychotic drugs, and Catherine and David went to pick up Melissa on their way home. When they got to Barbara and Ken's house, Catherine went inside to collect Melissa and her things while David and his mother stayed in the car. Barbara Knight came out and started strangling David through the car window. Wait, Barbara? It's a family tradition. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes, Barbara. Barbara was strangling David. Yep. David's mother ran next door to get help, but no one answered the door. Catherine came out of the house. Would you answer the door no. for that family? No. Okay. It's probably the yeah. Macbeth family. They're like, fool me once. <laughs> no, no, no. So, but Catherine came to the rescue. She came out of the house and saw what was happening. She grabbed her mother's shoulder, swung her around, and punched her so hard that she knocked her out. Oh, my God. She's like, only I get to fucking kill David, mom, not you. Pretty much. Pretty much. And then they all left together. David and Catherine only lived with David's mother for about three weeks. While living together, David's mother noticed some of Catherine's odd behavior. She said she was obsessed with cleaning Melissa and even drew blood one time while cleaning her ear. Catherine and David moved to Woodbridge in Queensland, where David got a job as a truck driver and Catherine got a job in an abattoir near Brisbane. They had moments where they appeared to be a totally normal couple. David threw Catherine a surprise 21st birthday party. I would never be willing to catch this woman off guard Uh in Uh any way, Mm -hmm. shape, or form, but the man had cojones, apparently. Yep. Catherine had the best night. She was apparently on her best behavior. She didn't swear, and she had an absolute magical time. She said she felt like a princess. (laughs) Swearing is like the least of her trouble. (laughs) I know. I know. But the dark night was still there, just below the surface. On her drives to and from work, Catherine would swerve to hit animals that jumped into the road, which is ironic since she spent time as a child nursing injured animals back to health, which what kind of psycho like I'm I practically create car accidents by slamming on my brakes for squirrels and she was swerving to hit these animals. It makes me think of that Geico commercial from the squirrels perspective and they make the car swerve and then they like do their high fives. You don't remember that commercial? I don't recall that commercial. They're like giggling. It's really (laughs) funny. And Catherine fell deeper in love with her knives. She was already bringing them with her everywhere that she went. But in the Kellett home in Queensland, she actually put up hooks above her pillow and hung the knives there every night just in case she ever needed them. And I could see the jealousy on your face and that like you're going to ha- go hang your knives <laughs> yeah. above your bed when you get home. My I knives. Know. I only have one knife. Singular. Like I I, get it. I'm losing out here. I oh. was thinking with all our other cases like that would be useful, you know, for yeah, all the like break pro- yeah. and protection and like that. Protection. But, yeah. See, I have really nice knives, but they don't have like holes to hook them onto. So it's just not going to work out for me. Got to get one of those magnetic strips. Or like a shelf. Oh, the magnetic strip. Okay, a shelf. Or wait, maybe just don't bring knives into your bedroom. That's another option. Some people no. are into that. I don't oh, know. Okay, yeah. You're right. I You're right. I, I did learn it when, when I went down yes, the rabbit hole in Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> Never do that. No. Yeah. And despite Catherine being insanely jealous, always accusing David of cheating, Catherine was caught having an affair with a union rep from the slaughterhouse. <laughs> David, <Catherine. laughs> David went home one day, caught them in the act. He pointed a rifle at the union rep and made the guy jump out the window. Oh, my God. 
David was furious and tried to kick Catherine out, but she begged for mercy on her knees. He said, no more psychotic ways or you're done. And Catherine was on her best behavior for the next few months. The family moved to Landsboro, where they stayed for about three years. One night, David was at a darts competition and he made it to the finals. He was a little bit late getting home. Catherine had called him and he said he couldn't just walk out and she was so mad. She burned all of his clothes in the bathtub and when he arrived home about four minutes late, she slammed him in the back of the head with a cast iron frying pan. (laughs) David made it to a neighbor's house before collapsing. He was bleeding from the nose, ears, and the back of his head and was rushed to the hospital where he stayed for a week with a fractured skull and a concussion. Oh, damn. The cops wanted to charge Catherine with attempted murder, but David Kellett wouldn't agree for multiple reasons. One, Catherine was incredibly apologetic and bought him all new clothes. (laughs) And two, Catherine was pregnant again. (sighs) Pregnancy hormones make even the sanest person a little bit crazy, but damn, big red. That was crazy. You're crazy. Catherine's second daughter, Natasha Marie Kellett, was born on March 6, 1980. Catherine's behavior continued to be disturbing. David's sister recalled a incident where she heard screams coming from the bathroom where Catherine was washing Melissa's hair. Catherine was washing it with scalding hot water. And when David's sister told her she was burning Melissa, she told her to fuck off. And in addition to being obsessive, jealous, and violent, Catherine was also vindictive. One morning, David was leaving for work and was drunk. He hit the gate post, leaving the driveway, and Catherine called the cops on him, and he ended up losing his license for a DUI charge. What the fuck? After that incident, David and Catherine split up for about a hot second, and soon thereafter, Catherine called David and said that he had to come straight away because Melissa had been raped. She had not been raped. Catherine was just being paranoid after a man simply talked to Melissa. But she'd gotten David all worked up. David had brought flowers, and the two ended up getting back together. Oh, David. David obviously just could not stay away. Nope. Again, Catherine was on her best behavior until one night, David woke up, and Catherine was sitting on top of him, pinning his arms down with one of her knives pressed against his neck near his mm-hmm. jugular. Mm-hmm. She was as calm as could be and asked him if it's true that truck drivers have a woman in every town. She told him how easy it would be for her to end his life. He talked her down, but he thought in that moment that he was done for. And yet David still didn't leave her. (laughs) In a twist of fate, one day he returned home from work and Catherine had taken the children and most of his belongings and moved back to Aberdeen. And when I say most of his belongings, she even took the curtains and light bulbs. (laughs) The only thing she left him was his sister's old couch, two cups, two saucers, two plates, and some Tupperware containers. Have you guys seen How the Grinch Stole Christmas yeah. and he puts oh, yeah. everything into the bag? That's yeah. what I'm imagining yeah. Catherine as doing. Yes. She even yep. took the last piece of who hash. <laughs> <laughs> so she left him after all of that. Oh Unreal. Yeah. After the shock wore off, uh, David went out and celebrated that he was finally free. Yeah. And alive. Right. (laughs) Really? He made it. He survived. Catherine moved around for a bit after and worked at several slaughterhouses. Her girls stayed with Barbara and Ken Knight until Catherine moved into a small house in Muswellbrook and got a job back at the Aberdeen Meat House. 
Catherine started to have back and shoulder problems at work. She had hurt her back originally in a car accident in 1979 and then a motorcycle accident in 1980. But starting in 84, she suffered a series of work-related injuries that made her injuries worse. She fell down the stairs and was off for two weeks. She was off for another injury in January 85, and then again a month later. And around that time, she realized that she just didn't want to work anymore. People said that she would lift dressers and wardrobes prior to her doctor's appointments to try to exacerbate her injury. (laughs) Not a bad idea. (laughs) She was ultimately put on a disability pension and filed for workman's compensation. The last time she worked was 1986, which is the same year that she met minor David Saunders at a bar, or Sondo, as his friends called him. Quick question. Do you mean like he worked in a mine or under 18 minor? Oh, he worked in a mine. Oh, I thought under 18 minor. Oh, yeah, Yeah, no, he worked. With an E or an O. (laughs) With an E, he worked in a mine. Okay. Hard, hard working miner. Um... Catherine and Sondo hit it off, and within a month, he was basically living with Catherine. His co-workers tried to warn him about her because her reputation preceded her, mm-hmm. but he didn't believe him. In December 86, Catherine got a call that her mother was very sick. She rushed to see her, but when she got there, her mother was already dead in the back of an ambulance. Oh. Catherine had adored her mother despite her shortcomings, and her death caused another downward spiral for Catherine. She was extremely paranoid of being abandoned and started yelling and screaming that Saunders was out with other women. A month after Barbara died, Saunders had enough and took off, but he couldn't get away that easily. No. Catherine went out looking for him the same day he left. She went to his house, but he wasn't there, so she ruined his car, which was one of his prized possessions. Mm -hmm. Then she went back to his house later, asking him to come back to Aberdeen with her to talk about the relationship. Sondo agreed. But on the way there, he got suspicious and made her return to see his car. And when he saw it, he was furious. They went back to Aberdeen together still and continued to fight. Catherine accused him of having an affair and said she was pregnant. Then Catherine physically attacked Saunders and he pushed her back in self-defense. She started screaming, you kicked me in the stomach. She was hysterical and ran to the kitchen to grab a knife. Saunders thought she was going to stab him, but she ran out the back door instead. You guys are not going to like this. I mean, nobody should like this, but you especially. When Saunders went outside after Catherine, Catherine was standing in the yard holding his dingo pup in her arms. Saunders could see the dog didn't look right and then realized that she had slit the dog's throat. Fuck you, Catherine, you piece of shit. Yeah, and then according to Catherine, she then hit Saunders with a frying pan, which is apparently her weapon of choice. It's on brand. Yeah. He took off running for his life, and Melissa said Catherine showed up at Joy's house covered in blood, carrying a shotgun, and told them that she had killed Saunders. So they didn't really know what was going on. Right. Catherine went to the hospital after that to say that she was pregnant and that she'd been attacked by David. She wasn't pregnant, and Saunders denied ever hitting her. What did what did David do? What? According, Catherine was always the victim. Well, yeah, but why David, not Saunders? Oh, I'm sorry. So it's David Kellett and David Saunders. And oh. I guess I'm slightly referring to them interchangeably. Oh. David Kellett is out of the picture right now. That's so what I thought. But when you I had s- been saying Saunders, so yes. I didn't realize. I thought that was his first name. Sorry, I use them interchangeably. No, it's David Saunders, and he goes by Sondo. And um, when I refer to David Saunders or Sondo, I'm talking about him. Okay. okay. But that's good, because I probably confused other people as yes. well. Okay. So thank you. So that makes sense. Yes. 
So she wasn't pregnant. Saunders denied ever hitting her, but Catherine was always the victim. And that's what she sold. She sold that story to her family. You know, poor Kathy, who's always with these drunk deadbeats. Mm-hmm. Uh, her children actually always supported her and her stories, yet the kids were also the subject of her terror on occasion. One time, Catherine showed up to a bar where Melissa was and smashed Melissa's head into the bar. She then punched and kicked her while she was on the floor and then dragged Melissa out of the bar by her hair. And no one did anything because Catherine's reputation preceded her. And also the bystander effect, I guess. Mm -hmm. Melissa said this never happened, but it sounds pretty on brand to me for Mm -hmm. Catherine. Well, Catherine Knight must have been an actual witch because after the dog incident, Saunders just forgave her and went back to her. And I'm just wondering what sort of black magic this woman really has over these men. The threat of death. Yeah. Potentially, yeah. Just scared for their lives. And of course, like always, Catherine was on her best behavior until a few months later when Catherine was in the car with David and a friend. She got so worked up, she tried to jump out of the moving car. They were able to calm her down, but when they got home... Catherine went inside while David talked to a neighbor. Natasha ran out and said, Mommy's on the floor. She had taken a fistful of pills and had to be rushed to the hospital. But after a visit from Saunders, she went from suicidal to ecstatic, and the staff released her but were wary about her mental instability. And to really mellow her out and contribute to her mental stability, Catherine got pregnant again. Oh, God. Yep, that'll do it. Mm -hmm. David got rid of his apartment and bought a two-bedroom house in Aberdeen, and Catherine was elated as it was the first home she had actually owned a part of. She decorated it with animal pelts, taxidermy, skulls, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, machetes, rakes, boots, pitchforks, scythes, and her beloved knives. And I'm I'm really jealous of that decor. I picture basically a haunted house setup mm-hmm. where they have like the pallet set up mm-hmm. with all the rusty like farm equipment on the walls. Definitely. I think that's Catherine Knight's house. Yep. Her daughter Sarah was born in June of 1988 and Catherine went into another spiral of depression. We're sensing a pattern here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, we are. In early 1989, Catherine's workers' compensation came through in a lump sum, and she basically bought David's house out from underneath him with the money. And the violence continued. One night, Catherine was pissed because David had stopped at the pub on the way home, so when he got home, she swung an iron at his head. Another time, Catherine took a pair of scissors to all of his clothes except the ones that were on his back. Another time, she stabbed him in the stomach with the scissors. And again... Catherine told everyone that David was the one that was violent towards her, and her family backed her up. David finally decided to leave Catherine and snuck away in the night and actually went into hiding to get away from this woman after seven years. Yeah, really, you need the witness protection program here. you do. And the day that he left, Catherine filed a restraining order against him, accusing him of a long list of domestic abuse. When David returned to town to try to rescue his daughter from Catherine, he was pulled over by police. He was advised there was an outstanding apprehended violence order against him and that he could leave town or go to jail. You know, I've been trying not to shit on the police in this area, but the like she has a complete record of all this and yet they they side with her and I get him in trouble. I think in some of the instances she had marks 
that she was using to substantiate like i think she went to one doctor and they like didn't see anything so she went to another doctor and they're like i think she basically beat herself up in the meantime yes. like jim yeah. carrey and liar yeah. liar when yeah. he's in the bathroom it's like yeah. i was kicking my ass <laughs> so i think it was it's part of yeah. believing the woman and also she had marks and yeah yeah uh, but i get i get the frustration so David Saunders had to leave town without Sarah or access to the house that he had paid the deposit for that Catherine was now living in. He was devastated to leave his daughter, and Catherine told his daughter that he was dead. Of course she did. I do believe that they were reunited later on. His daughter saw him mm -hmm. in town and was like, um, I'm seeing a ghost, and yeah. then they ultimately reunited. But um, it's a bitch move and it's shitty. She probably considered actually killing him. That's why. Yeah. To her. Might as well be if dead. I had my way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Catherine was never alone for long, and then she found John Chillingworth. How? How are she, how is she finding men? She's a witch, you're right. She is apparently a freak in the sheets. These <laughs> these men have said that she is the best they ever had. Which is very I don't even know what the right word is concerning given her experiences in her childhood. Yes. Yes. So I think there's something mm -hmm. very twisted and uh, words. <laughs> Something's not right. Words, words are hard. But obviously she's also very manipulative. Yes. And I think yeah. that probably is also learned behavior Definitely. from from her environment. She obviously had a very shitty environment. John had been from Aberdeen and moved away for a decade with his wife. He returned freshly divorced and half pickled from alcohol. He got his job back at the slaughterhouse and ran into Catherine at the Willow Tree Hotel. She brought him home and they seemed to be a good fit. Then Catherine got pregnant again. John Chillingworth had been in a relationship for 15 years with not even a hint of pregnancy and Catherine was pregnant in a little over a month. Catherine's youngest was only two years old. So she's fertile. She's fertile. Very fertile. Fertile Myrtle. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we know that Catherine was a loving, caring woman, especially when pregnant. Definitely. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. She started telling John that the child was not his. She told him that she had gotten back together with her ex and that she wanted to try again with him. John Chillingworth begged her to stay and she agreed so that she'd have the upper hand in the relationship. At the end of 1990, Catherine gave birth to her only son, Eric. She had four children with three fathers by the time she was 35. Despite her rocky relationship with Chillingworth, she was happy to have another child. Even though they now shared a child together, Catherine wouldn't let Chillingworth move into her house because she didn't want to lose her welfare checks. Mm, okay. They continued to get into arguments. During one fight, the couple were in the car hitting each other. Catherine drove right up to the police station, went inside, and got John arrested on assault charges. She went to the hospital for her injuries and they gave her an ice pack and noted a little swelling. And Melissa had said that her mother's face was swollen beyond recognition. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying where it's like mm -hmm. a little bit of like overemphasizing your injuries and yeah. like the family's backing her. Yeah. And obviously I'm glad they're believing the woman, but still. Right. But men can be victims of domestic violence yes. as well. Exactly. One night, Chillingworth accidentally hit Melissa in the mouth with his arm. Melissa told Catherine he deliberately punched her. Catherine walked into the bathroom and punched the glass containing his false teeth, breaking them into fragments, and he had to pay $600 to replace them. 
Once again, despite the erratic behavior, John Chillingworth didn't leave. It was Catherine that told him it was over after they had been together about four years. She told him she had found someone new and that someone new was John Price, or as his friends called him, Pricey. Just for a little background on Pricey, like Catherine, he came from a dysfunctional family. He was one of five siblings and there was constant fighting in the house. One day his father and brother were fighting and his brother grabbed a shotgun. He fired a shot in warning and at that moment his mother had walked around the corner. She was killed and his brother went to jail for it. But Pricey was devastated by the loss of his mother. Damn. Oh my God. Isn't like the pieces of the story are insane. Yes. Like and on their so, own. Yeah. Like and on their so own. So tragic and unfortunate. Really. Across the board. And also like Catherine, Pricey never learned to read or write, but he was a hard worker and was driving machinery before he could even ride a bike. He was around five foot six, but he was a tough cigarette smoking, beer drinking kind of guy. John Price married Colleen Price when he was 18 and they started a family. The couple had three children and were happy for a while, but after about 12 years of marriage, they split amicably. John stayed in the family's three-bedroom home and Colleen moved into an apartment, but there was no animosity between them. In fact, John never really stopped loving her. One time she went on a vacation and he snuck $600 in her bank account. Another time, she asked to borrow some money to buy a used fridge, and he showed up at her house with a new one on his truck. Mm-hmm. Really nice guy. John Price started a relationship with Catherine Knight about two months before John Chillingworth knew anything about it. So you guys like that. It's David Kellett, David yeah. Saunders, John Chillingworth, John Price. Do you think it's intentional on her part? She's like, well, if I say the wrong name, they're still both David. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about that, but maybe. The couple never really moved in together. Catherine, again, wanted to protect her welfare checks, and Pricey was a man of habit, so he resisted the change of Catherine making his home hers. She did move some stuff into the house, but Price mostly protested and would get pissed if she moved anything because Colleen had decorated it and he liked it that way. And Price's kids never really took to Catherine either, so that was a source of conflict. Price's kids knew that Catherine was a bit strange. On one occasion when they were camping, Catherine told Pricey's daughter that she had been abducted by aliens in 83 and that other family members had seen the UFO. (laughs) That makes it legit. So they were like, "Mm, she's a little, she's a little bizarre. Price liked having Catherine around and someone in his bed at night, but he mostly just put up with her and didn't like the idea of being tied down. Catherine tried her damnedest, cooking him meals, sewing, keeping the house clean, and putting out, but John was never really committed to their relationship like he'd been with Colleen. Amazingly, Catherine had been mostly sober up to this point, but with Pricey, she started to drink, and alcohol just made her nastier. In March 1995, things took a turn for the couple. Catherine was pushing the issue of marriage, and John wouldn't commit. They'd both been drinking, and the argument was nasty. Catherine stormed out and gulped down a bottle of pills in front of her daughter, Natasha. She told her not to call an ambulance because she wanted it to end. And she was sent to the hospital, but was released the next day, which again is a pattern. Mm -hmm. Catherine continued to be jealous of Price and his children. Her and the kids had a terrible relationship. When Price's daughter was 13, Catherine sat her down and told her that Price wasn't her biological father. His daughter was devastated and confronted him when he got home, and he told her that Catherine was lying and that Catherine was just trying to drive a wedge between him and the kids. Jeez. 
John reached a point where he wanted Catherine out of the house, as all the men do. On one occasion, he asked her to get him and his friend a beer. She told him no, and he told her to get the fuck out. She said, you'll never get me out of this house. I'll do you in first. She was probably being serious. (laughs) She meant it. Catherine continued to push the idea of marriage, but John wouldn't commit. So Catherine took his money and bought herself a ring. (laughs) <laughs> Which again is so romantic. Very romantic. Independent girl who don't need no man. <laughs> John said it wasn't that serious, but Colleen told him that he should put the house in the kids' name so that she wouldn't take it from him. When Catherine found out that he'd left the house to the kids, she said she'd only leave if he gave her ten thousand dollars. <laughs> she was mad at him for not leaving the house to her and she wanted her revenge. One morning when John was leaving for work, she kissed him goodbye. After he left, Catherine took her and her family's possessions out of the house and began her scheme to get even. The mine that John worked at had recently replaced all of the first aid kits because they were past their expiration date. But the kits were still good, so John had taken them out of the trash and brought them home. Before she left, Catherine made a video of all the kits with a camera that John had bought her for Christmas. And she went through with a commentary of all the things that John had quote unquote stolen and gave the videotape to John's bosses. Because of Catherine, John lost his job that paid $100,000 and he also lost his pension. Even though John explained to them like what happened and it wasn't stolen, they still let him go. John got home from the mine and threw Catherine out of the house, but she had basically already left on her own. John was happy to be free of her after years of incessant fighting, and John's friends told him that if he ever went back to her, they would be done with him. Good friends. And three weeks later, oh no, John was back with Catherine. <sighs> One of his friends told him that Catherine would kill him if they stayed together, and he said, I know, but I love her. <laughs> oh. So John took her back. Catherine told Natasha, I told him if he took me back this time, it was to the death. (laughs) Catherine continued her crazy ways, and by late 1999, John wanted out again. (sighs) Sean. (laughs) You had your chance, buddy. You had your chance. My God. He broke down to one of his friends in the bar and told him that Catherine had stabbed him in the chest. Police had asked Catherine about that incident after the fact, and basically it was either an accident or he tripped into her knife, or she didn't know she was holding the knife that stabbed him. Excuses, oh. excuses, excuses. He ran into her knife. He just yeah. fell on it. Yes. He tripped into it, basically. I think I think she said that she was like holding it and talking with her hands, and she didn't realize how close she was to him. You Cla- know, classic. I feel like she could. that could happen, too, with it her. Could, it could yeah. happen to anybody, really. <laughs> Now, Catherine was plotting violence against John Price. She discussed plans with her nephew about throwing battery acid on his face, breaking his legs, or burning his car. They never went through with it, though. During a conversation with her family, though, Catherine's brother remembers she said, I'm going to kill Pricey, and I'm going to get away with it. I'll get away with it, because I'll make out I'm mad. On February 27, 2000, Catherine and John got into it. Catherine said that John was getting on her about having different fathers for her children. Catherine apparently made a comment about John's mother, and then she said he grabbed her by the throat and twisted her breast. Catherine said he broke one of her favorite necklaces, and she could barely think because of the pain that she was feeling. 
the police were called and she said she decided at that moment that she would leave John Price. Catherine had failed to mention to the police that she had grabbed a knife and chased John Price around the house with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The cops asked Catherine if she wanted to press charges and she was like, nah, I'm good. He got his anger out and the cops were like, okay, I mean, like maybe you should stay at your place for the night though. And she was like, no, I'm good. This is my house. I'm not leaving. (laughs) But Price wanted her out and the cops were like, sorry, you need a court order to get her out. Because of this incident, two apprehended violence orders were filed, but they couldn't have cross summons for court, so they basically just processed Catherine's and served the order on Price the next day, which Catherine was actually annoyed about because she hadn't wanted to press charges because they just like worked it out together right, as a just, couple. Mm-hmm. When John was served the summons, he told the officers, I just want her out of here, but she won't go. But Catherine got insanely paranoid that Pricey was plotting to get her thrown out of his house. And she thought that he had worked out a private deal with the police. And she continued to plot. She actually made a voodoo doll with some of his clothes that she had cut up. And I think normally voodoo dolls have like a little piece of hair or yeah. a clipping mm-hmm. of hair. Oh, well, well, Catherine just smeared some of his semen on it. Oh, okay. That even more effective. Very direct. Instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of the clippings of hair. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how she collected it or where it came from or oh, I know how, how she, she collected saved it. it. <laughs> I mean, yes, okay. So she, you know how she collected it. I, was sa- I guess saved it was yeah. more what I was thinking of. Turkey based her. <laughs> so on February 29th, 2000, which was a leap day, John woke up and got out of the house first thing in the morning. He had woken up the night before and Catherine had been standing at the end of his bed with her hands behind her back and it had scared the shit out of him. As it should. Yeah, it would scare the shit out of anybody. If you do that to me, like, we we are done. I don't want to wake up to anybody, like, hovering over me. I just know my tiny children are going to do that to me. And (laughs) one of them almost does, but she also comes out crying. So at least there's some warning. Yes. The night that I open my eyes and she's just a (laughs) silhouette in my eye eye line, like, I'm just going to lose it. I'm going to lose it. John went to work and he actually told his coworkers, if I don't show up for work tomorrow, it'll be because she killed me. Friends offered him safe places to sleep, but he was afraid that if he wasn't home and Catherine came looking for him, that she'd hurt his children. And we know that she resented them. Yep. Catherine had a busy day herself running errands. Um, She went to a thrift store to buy sexy black lingerie for her big night with John Price. Catherine then went over uh, her sister Joy's house and picked up her beloved video camera that John no longer allowed in the house after the quote-unquote incident. Catherine went over to Natasha's house, which is her daughter, and she set up the video camera. She was sitting on an armchair with her grandchild on her lap, sort of making like a video last will and testament. Wait, she has a grandchild? She does. So I believe it was Natasha's child. Not sure how old she was at the time, but they were they were young. Okay. So um, the grandchild sitting on her lap opened her shirt and she let the child play with her breasts, which she called Nana's titty bops, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm laughing because like, how can you not laugh at that? Like Nana's titty bops. So totally normal. Colby's speechless. At first I thought it was the kid's shirt, but then I realized you meant it no, was... It's, it's Nana's. It, it was it's Nana's. Nana's. It's Nana's shirts. Nana's titty bops. Nana's titty bops. And she was like singing little ditties to them. Little nursery Little titty ditties. <laughs> little titty ditties, yep. 
So she filmed the children playing and said how much she loved them. When she was alone for a moment, she looked at the camera and said, I love all my children and I hope to see them all. Catherine then took her family out for Chinese food for dinner, which was unusual, and she seemed preoccupied. When they got back to Natasha's, Catherine asked Natasha if her two youngest kids could stay the night, even though they didn't have any of their things with them for the next day. Natasha said, I hope you're not going to kill Pricey and yourself. And Catherine was like, no, 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 no. Definitely. Definitely not. Not crossing my fingers right now. No. She said, if we get into it, I'll just go to my house. And I just wonder how obvious it was to Natasha that she was lying when she said that. I mean, like, how bizarre must she have been acting where Natasha's like, are you going to kill Pricey and yourself? And she's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Catherine went to visit a friend in Aberdeen at 1030 at night and then left their house about an hour later. She made a quick trip to her own home and then headed over to Price's house. Does she have the children with her? No, the children are at Natasha. They stayed with Natasha. Mm-hmm. Okay. She let herself in while John was sleeping upstairs. She watched some television. She remembers it was Star Trek. And then she went upstairs to shower and slipped on her black lingerie from the thrift store. She woke John up and they made love. Catherine says she remembers he got out of bed to go to the bathroom, walked back to the bed, and then fade to black. That's all she remembers. <laughs> but... John Price had gotten back into bed, and Catherine stabbed him with a boning knife. He lunged from the bed, trying to turn on the light, frantically ran down the hallway while she chased after him, stabbing him in the back and wildly slashing at him. Blood sprayed everywhere and up the walls. John managed to get to the front door and get it open. He made it partially outside, leaving blood on the front step and the front door, but she pulled him back in. And that was where it ended. Catherine stabbed John a total of 37 times. And John bled out on the cork floor in front of the door. The human body has about five liters of blood, and John Price lost almost every drop on that floor. Catherine took a shower, leaving flesh, hair, and blood in the drain. Mm -hmm. She left her bloody lingerie draped over the tub. Once dressed, she stole John's ATM card and drove into town. At 2.32 in the morning, she withdrew $500, and then three minutes later, she took out another $500 when she realized she hadn't hit the ATM limit. She then drove her car back to her own house and hid it in the backyard behind the shed. Around 3.30, Catherine headed back to Price's house on foot. Once there, she grabbed her knives and went to work. Oh, dear. Oh, no. She dragged Price from the giant pool of blood he was lying in, and brought him into the living room. She made an incision across his shoulders, down the front of his body to his pubic hairline, around the pubic area and down the front of his legs, down the back of his arms, and across the top of his head. Catherine then peeled his skin off in one piece, leaving only small amounts behind. John's nose, ears, penis, and testes were all intact and part of the skin suit that Catherine proceeded to hang from a hook in the doorway on full display. Mm. This, from Gosh. the intro, I had Ed Gein vibes from this, and now I definitely do. Mm-hmm. Wow. Catherine then skillfully decapitated John, removing his head at the C3-C4 vertebrae, 
so carefully that not a single mark was left on any bones. Once removed, she placed his head in a pot on the stove to simmer with some vegetables that she had cut up. That's what happened in the Hello Kitty murder episode. Holy shit. Hello Kitty vibes coming your way. Catherine then sliced off John's buttocks and put them on a roasting tray in the oven. I don't mean to laugh, but like, we will probably not keep this in the episode. Occasionally, <laughs> Mike will talk about how he would prepare like my thighs or my ass. <laughs> and it usually is roasted. <laughs> he roasts them. <laughs> He's just got to slice it. There's a lot of meat on the bones, guys. I'd be very tasty. There's a lot of meat marbled with fat. So much seasoning. Wigu. I don't need seasoning. There's Kobe beef. This is Colby beef. It's delightful. But but can we leave it in the episode? Wait. Yes. Oh That's so man. Funny. That is funny. Which, by the way, I have learned that like human meat is like very dark and fatty like, like chicken thighs yes Ooh. i guess i really okay. like chicken thighs though <laughs> okay <laughs> so Catherine sliced off john's buttocks and put them on a roasting tray in the oven she then set the table scribbling names on paper towels under two plates one for each of john's two children oh. she then scrawled a nonsense note that she placed in the middle It said, time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. The spellings are terrible. You to Beck for Ross for little John. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. (laughs) Not sure Mm -hmm. exactly what it means, but nothing in the note is accurate. Like they have confirmed none of that is true. So just, just crazy, crazy ramblings. When the meal was ready... She put a piece of meat with zucchini, potatoes, squash, and cabbage on each plate and drizzled it with gravy made from roasted human fat. There was a third piece of meat that had been cut from one of the larger pieces of the buttocks, and she threw that out in the backyard for the dog. Catherine took John's headless, skinless body and propped it up in his favorite chair. She crossed his legs and tucked an empty 1.5 liter bottle of soda under his arm. She then took a pile of sleeping pills and went to sleep in their bed, which was still covered in John's blood. Again, just slack, slack jaw stairs. This bitch is what I'm insane. I, literally every sentence, it is crazier. Mm-hmm. Wow. When John didn't show up for work the next day, his coworkers tried calling his truck radio to no avail. Price's neighbors got out of Price's neighbor got out of bed around 6 a.m. and noticed that Price's truck was still in the driveway and knew something was wrong. He walked across the street and banged on the door, but no one answered. When he looked down, he saw the blood on the handle, so he went home and called the police, fearing for the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The police knocked on the doors and windows, but there was no sign of life. They entered the home into a crime scene straight out of a horror movie. Those poor officers. There's mm-hmm. nothing that would prepare you for mm-hmm. what you're about to watch. Traumatized. Mm-mm. Like, you can't even... If this was in a horror movie, you'd be like, that's that's a bit much. Right. That's right. a bit much. Exactly. It was bright outside, and all the curtains were drawn in the house, so the officers' eyes had to adjust to the red carnage within. There was so much blood in the front entryway that it was still wet and hadn't congealed when the officers got there. 
the pool of blood measured one meter by two meters which is about three feet by six feet and that's when i said five liters of blood and he left it all on yeah the floor. that's like, like the he table we're sitting right at. bled out there wow. officers at first did not know what was hanging from the doorway they thought it was a curtain or a blanket but one officer pushed it aside to walk into the other room and he felt that it was wet and his looked down and his arm was covered in blood. They then noticed that this curtain had eye holes, a nose, pubic hair, and arms and legs. Mm. They also saw what was left of John's headless body in the chair and were able to piece together the nightmarish scene in front of them. When they got into the kitchen and saw the soup pot on the stove, one officer said, I'll give you one guess where the head is. The officers found the head in the pot a cooked eye floating on the surface mm. looking back at them. The police could hear snoring and found Catherine in bed, essentially comatose but alive. They dragged her outside and she was taken away by ambulance. The small town officers had never seen anything like this and they were never the same. I uh, know. Some officers left the police force, some committed suicide, oh. and some were diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. One officer said he couldn't eat meat for three months. That's fair. Yep. Yeah. That's fair. John's body was taken to the coroner's office to be examined by a forensic pathologist. Catherine had done such a good job removing his skin that the coroner was able to stitch it back onto his body. Oh, my God. I'm picturing the farmer from Men in Black, the alien that invades the farmer's body, and like <laughs> yeah. his skin is like falling off his yeah. face. Like that's what I picture. Yep. But they got it back on his body. Why? And what? Why well, did they... Once it okay. was back on, they were able to line up and count the stab oh, wounds. Oh, oh, okay. Like, that um, seems like a, a lot of effort. Yeah. Closed casket. Yeah. Close that sucker. <laughs> Closed casket. Yeah. So they found 37 stab wounds on his body. They said there could have been more, but they would have been hitted. Hit, hidden in the area where he was decapitated Mm. the pathologist identified stab wounds to john's front and back and he had been stabbed in his left lung diaphragm stomach spleen liver aorta colon and kidney you don't need any of those not important no Mm -mm. and i i would say that this is the most disturbing part but i mean the whole case is disturbing so like you really can't say that but the report noted that there were no defensive wounds which is just disturbing it's just disturbing Catherine woke up in the hospital two days later and told officers that she had no recollection of the events of that night and kept telling police how much she loved john when the police started asking the community about Catherine, everyone basically begged them to make sure that she never saw the light of day again finally yeah yeah Catherine had agreed to plead guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter in exchange for a reduced sentence based upon her personality disorder and low intelligence, but the Crown refused given the circumstances of the crime. Catherine may have had a low IQ, but she was cunning. Catherine's trial began 19 months after the murder on October 16, 2001, with Justice Barry O'Keefe presiding. The lawyers discussed concern over the evidence the jury members would examine, and the judge agreed that they did not want anyone on the jury who had a weak stomach. The next day, a pool of 60 potential jurors were called, and the judge gave them a speech that the evidence was graphic, grisly, and gruesome. Anyone who wished to leave would be permitted to do so, and five jurors bounced. 
a few more left when they recognized names on the witness list, but a jury was ultimately impaneled. After discussions with Knight's defense team, the judge adjourned for the day. It's unclear what made Catherine change her mind, but her defense lawyers had advised the judge that she was willing to change her plea. So the judge ordered an overnight psychiatric assessment to be sure that Catherine understood the consequences of the guilty plea. The local psychiatrist was satisfied that she did. And the next morning, Catherine pled guilty to murder and the judge dismissed the jury. The matter then proceeded to the sentencing phase and the crown wanted life. Mm -hmm. They submitted witness statements, two psychiatric reports, a set of photographs and a collection of videos. The judge decided to watch the crime scene video first. That was a mistake. Kathy's defense attorney asked if she could be excused, which the judge agreed to allow. I would make her sit there. Like You're defending this woman. You see what she did. The video of the crime scene was shown before lunch and they adjourned for the day afterwards as if nobody had the stomach to go on. Yeah. I have actually heard that this crime scene video is locked away because they're afraid that it will traumatize people who watch it. The next day in court, the Crown called the forensic pathologist to testify. He explained how skilled someone would have to be to remove a head in the manner that John's was removed, with no marks on the bones. He estimated it took between 5 to 10 minutes to decapitate him. He was asked about how long it would take for a human to be skinned. He said it would not have taken just a few minutes, but probably could have been completed within 30 minutes to an hour. Beyond that, he could not comment. The Crown continued to put on evidence, and as one officer testified how Catherine would have had to carry John's head through the arch with the skin hanging on it, Catherine started moaning and rocking back and forth, kicking the partition and screaming. She was escorted out, returned to prison, and had to be given a sedative. Putting on a real good show. Yeah. A psychiatrist was also called to the stand and was asked about her diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and what kind of impact that might have had on her actions. The psychiatrist said what she did on the night was part of her personality, her nature, herself, but it is not a feature of borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. It is not even slightly connected. The psychiatrist was especially interested in the fact that Catherine went to the ATM that night. He testified that purposeful behavior for personal gain showed how controlled she was at that stage, which was likely a reflection of how she was for the rest of the night. Another psychiatrist was called and also dismissed her claims of amnesia. He thought her suicide attempt was disingenuine and was an attempt to cover up for her behavior. He said her personality problems were not a psychiatric disease, but were part of her nature. Additional witnesses were called, and the sentencing trial was adjourned on November 1st. On Thursday, November 8th, 2001, Catherine was the first woman in Australia to receive a sentence of life in prison. Really? Yeah. The judge had prepared a 40-page decision. The judge found that the murder of John Price was both premeditated and enjoyed by Catherine. Mm -hmm. The judge found that her history of violence and her flawed personality made her a very dangerous person and that if she were to be released, she would commit further acts of serious violence to whoever crossed her. Finally, someone said that. Yes. Jeez. The judge wrote a note in her file, quote, never to be released. So John Price's family got justice, but they will never be the same. His kids will obviously never be the same. And John Price's 
brother, Bob, who sat through all the court proceedings, actually committed suicide shortly oh. after her sentencing. Oh, gosh. Oh. Catherine is still alive today. She's currently 66 years old, and she's doing quite well in prison. There's a book by James Phelps called Green is the New Black, Inside Australia's Hardest Women's Jails, that includes a peek into Catherine's life in prison. I did not read this book. That Good would be, that'd be number three. Um, but information from it was in some of the books and articles that I read. As of 2017, Catherine had a job assembling earphones at the prison factory, which is apparently a very skilled job. Hmm. And she's surrounded by guards the entire time. The other inmates call her the Nana. She acts as a mediator for disputes between other inmates and basically what she says goes. Everyone respects her. Probably because they're terrified of yep. her. Yeah. yeah. She has her own cell, which is filled with craft projects, paintings, pottery, crocheting, and knitting projects. The prison won't put another inmate with her because they're afraid she'll hurt them. <laughs> Despite pleading guilty, Catherine takes no responsibility for her actions and maintains that she was in a disassociative state when the whole thing occurred. In 2006, Catherine tried to appeal her sentence, arguing that it was too harsh for the single murder she committed. <laughs> I only killed one guy. <laughs> My God. In the most atrocious mm -hmm. way ever. A panel of three judges reviewed the case and quickly confirmed her sentence. One of the judges that reviewed her appeal said this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. And Seriously. that really sums it up. Yep. And that is the tale of Catherine Knight. Oof. I mean... You did talk up this case quite a bit, and I, I still was not prepared. I was not prepared. <laughs> wow. Because you can't even imagine the things that she did, like, in no. your wildest dream. It's like, it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre shit. Yeah. Like, hanging wow. human pelts from hooks in the doorway. Like, that is horror movie. You know, what's nuts is that's not the part that actually gets me the worst. It's all of the chaos and like reign of terror she had leading up to that you know like that's bad enough don't get me wrong but it's just like she ruined so many lives her poor children you know like just i know reign when of you, terror when you get to the crescendo you almost forget about the Catherine Knight right. who ripped the blade off a lawnmower and was right. like hacking yes. through a door. Yeah. Like you forget about the Catherine Knight who left her baby on the train tracks and started swinging mm -hmm. an axe in town. That's like you, what I'm saying. You forget about that Catherine because you're thinking about the like mad butcher Catherine, right? And what she did to John Price, right? And I mean, again, I felt I felt for her childhood, which was not fair. But that, unfortunately, I'm sure there's people that have had equally traumatic childhoods that don't skin people true it's true gosh you know what i'm most stuck on though how come she got to crochet and knit and all that in she's jail? like living the life in jail That's, it sounds yeah, like like i'm kind of jealous of that part i mean i don't want to be in jail but in her own cell she gets to crochet and knit. And I almost wonder if that's what made her change her plea i wonder if she spent like just a little bit of time in prison and she was like you know what this is the best place i've been people are afraid of me yep. people yeah. respect me i rule the roost here i get three square meals like yep. i do what i want mm -hmm. yep and she was like yep guilty put me Jeez. away did you read anything about her children any like did they grow up to well i guess they had already grown up but do they have normal 
lives. I, I just did not. I don't, don't feel that that's in the cards for them. I don't yeah. know about that. I, I would assume they're a little bit disturbed. Yeah. But I, I, children. I do remember um, when the cops went to talk to one of the children, they were like, you know, your mom killed John Price. And they were like, did she now? Yeah. <laughs> they were just like, okay. Like, like, yeah. Saw that coming. I think they were surprised by the methodology. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. But I don't think anybody was really surprised that she did it. No, no. So she had to really go the Jeez. extra mile right. for the shock and awe factor since everyone basically saw it coming. Crazy. Did she pluck the buttocks? Like, she sliced. No, no, I get that. But isn't there usually hair on men's buttocks but that was skinned off of his body with the skin suit oh, so it just left the, just meat. the meat oh i'm following mm, just okay. the meat oh, was. Okay. like did you watch game of thrones mm-hmm. he was like the flayed man okay just okay. like the anatomical this was parts. really bothering me i just needed to know what's no, thing she you. didn't need to pluck the hair because it okay. came no, off that's right you're suit. right you're right you're right just, she didn't try it on like Edgine style? I don't think so. In the one of the books that I read, it said that she put it in, she put the butt meat in her mouth and tried it and then spit it out. That I believe. Yeah. That I believe. But yeah. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure about that. That yeah. was only in one of the two books that I read. So it's unclear if it <laughs> yeah. was accurate. I, it doesn't seem, well, it doesn't seem like her MO, but I don't no, know. No, it doesn't. Unless she's like, well, I mean, like I, I prepared it. it. You know, I know what the other meat tastes like. Right. I gotta, yeah. No, I meant uh, trying it on. Oh, oh, I thought you meant. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know okay. that it would fit her because she's like six feet and he was like five foot six. Oh, it's, it is that way. So I was thinking it was like a Snuggie. <laughs> no. A snuggie. What are those? Onesie, onesie, onesie. No, it was not like a onesie. It okay. would be, it'd be too small for her. It just I realized that He now. wasn't, yeah. he wasn't her size. Okay. Yeah. She did not do the research that Ed Gein did. Mm-mm. No, okay. it was more decorative, more home decor mm-hmm. than fashion. That's fair. Okay. Thank you. That was bothering me that whole time. You're so welcome. <laughs> so, though, I mean, I suppose the hair would have cooked off in the stove on the roasting tray had she left it Ooh, on there. That would have contributed to the bad the smells. smell. Yeah. This the how I cannot mm. imagine the smell in that yeah. house because you have the blood all over the floor, you have the roasting butt meat, and you have the simmering head mm-hmm. in the stock pot. Yeah. So overall. That is not a Bath and Body Works candle scent. No. I'm not buying that scent. No. No, no I'm leaving that one behind on the shelf. Yeah. Guys, wow. <laughs> it, grim. It, it's, one it, might say. It's grim. And if you guys are enjoying listening to Grim, please rate and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we would be forever grateful if you took a minute to leave us a written review. We text obsessively. We literally, yeah. We screenshot them and send them yes, because we're so excited. About them and they make our day and we love when you guys make our day. Follow us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast for information on future episodes and case photos. I will be putting up photos of Catherine Knight, a.k.a. The Dark Knight, a.k.a. The Fucking Speckled Hen, a.k.a. Big Red. And if you want to send us a case suggestion or just say hi, you can email us at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim. Grim.